0: The way i've i've done it for myself is to look into the far future into what do i want to be or where i want to be and go in that direction you don't need to have a path step by step i will do this way this day this by this day this way this day that's unrealistic but you can have the final goal in your mind the final goal in your mind might be I want to be a smart contracts developer and I want to be able to deploy things and I want to have a successful protocol or I want to be a CTO or I want to do this or I want have that final goal okay because when you have that final goal the earlier steps you will know the direction okay does this get me closer to that? yeah does it get me closer to that? no so you decide and on top of that make sure that you have fun and that you like what you do because otherwise it's not going to work I've I've always chosen what to do in life in the sense that is this going to be fun? So when I was in Lisbon and I was looking for a, a new job, was like, is it fun to be a middle manager in a, in a billion-dollar unicorn? That was so great. Or is it fun to learn about this shit and and join these two crazies that don't even have an office, that they don't even pay for their co-work, and learn about this stuff that all these Weird people are doing about. Which one is more fun? This one is more fun.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Devs Do Something. I'm your host, Sam Flamini, and today's guest is the co founder and technical lead at Yield. Uh, We have Alberto Cuesta Cañada with us today. Alberto is is actually a mentor of a previous guest. So Dev Tooligan, who is one of our most all-time listened episodes. Uh, you can go back and listen to that one if you'd like. But Alberto was instrumental in helping to kickstart Dev Tooligan's career in Web3. And in this episode, we went really deep into all things Web3 developer career growth and you know how Alberto actually thinks about building on a day-to-day basis. So Alberto in particular has a lot of really great thoughts on security, right, from the protocol side, right? Like, as is, is a person building a protocol, how do you approach building something that is secure? And, you know, and even if it, you know, something happens, how do you handle scenarios where you have to get into a war room uh, and deal with things like exploits, potential exploits, and all that good stuff? So I think if you are an early to mid-career developer in the space alberto is someone that you're going to want to follow and you're going to want to listen to um we did talk about some very beginner things but i'd say that this episode in particular is targeted at developers who are already in web3 that have had a bit of experience under their belts and are looking to make this jump from like early to to mid-level to really elite level right so if you're not there yet, you'll get there soon. Uh, just just keep listening to the show. Uh, and if you are there, you know I hope that this episode delivers a lot of value to you. So we're thankful again to Alberto who came on. And uh, yeah, we hope you enjoy the episode. As devs, we all love hackathons. They're a great way to boost your skill set, meet other engineers, and add to your portfolio of work. At Superfluid, we've sponsored many hackathons and decided to start putting on a hackathon of our own, the Superfluid Wave Pool. This hackathon is a little bit different though in that it's continuous, it's always open. You can submit any project built on Superfluid at any point throughout the month and have a chance to earn thousands of dollars in prizes depending on how your project stacks up. In just the last couple of months, we've seen dozens of teams build really amazing projects that run the gamut from superfluid developer tutorials to full-fledged applications uh, to a proof of concept superfluid Starknet implementation that we thought was really, really impressive. So we encourage you to check it out today. You can learn more by going to superfluid.finance/wavepool. That's superfluid.finance/wavepool. Happy hacking! All right, we are here today with another episode of Devs Do Something, and our, our guest is someone that was highly recommended from a past guest, Dev Uh and we're here with Alberto. Welcome, Alberto. Hello. Nice nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for being here. See, like I said, uh, Dev Tuligan spoke very highly of you. I think you were a real mentor to him. Uh, you came up a lot throughout the episode yeah. we did with him, and uh, yeah, we're excited to get into your journey and how you think about your own developer career. Um, We'll get into security and some of the things like that as well. But before we do all of that, uh, we'd love to just understand a little bit about your background and how you got into this industry.
0: Okay. So um, it was not very straightforward. So I only got into crypto at about age 38 or something. Before then, I was... uh, complex systems researcher in, in Spain. Then I moved to London and I worked as a supercomputing engineer for a number of years. Then I moved to Australia, also as a supercomputing engineer for a number of years. And then I moved to Lisbon for personal reasons. And I realized that in Lisbon, there was absolutely zero demand for supercomputing engineers. Um, so I needed to find another career. And After a little bit of looking around, I found that my two best options was to become a middle manager in some unicorn or join two crazy guys that were starting a consultancy firm around blockchain. Uh, I did know about blockchain. Um, Everyone knew at the time that was 2018, I think, Uh, but I hadn't thought of getting into it, but that sounded a lot more interesting than becoming a middle manager in some billion dollar company. So I joined the two guys and my job in the first few months was to learn about blockchain so that we could sell blockchain projects to, to to, other companies. So that's how I started in blockchain. It was not because I was into the values or because I was into cryptography. It It is because I thought it was fun. So in a way, I'm in it for the tech. You know, I thought this is a lot more fun than the than just managing people. And yeah, eventually... We landed one one project, we sold something, and there was some coding to do, and well, that was my job
1: then. Nice. Yeah, you're in it for the tech. I like it. You're not in it for the ideology <laughs> yeah. necessarily, you're in it for the tech, which is probably a good thing, uh, to be honest with you. Um,
0: I, I, I don't dislike the ideology either, but that came later.
1: Sure, got it, got it. It came after the contact with, with the space, I suppose. Um, so, what was the early learning process like? What were some of the early resources you used? I think you said somewhere you use crypto zombies. Uh, like, what, what were some of the early steps mm-hmm. you made into the space?
0: So, yeah, my well, first I did a study a bunch of papers of um, how some uh, protocols of the time had been built and, and so on, but not at a very developer level. When it came to actually learning developer development, I did start with, with crypto zombies. Um I did that in about a week. It was fun enough and uh, after that, the uh, next thing that I had to do in the sense of development is when we actually had one project and one and the developer that we had was struggling with coding some math for it Um, he asked me to to help him, so I started coding the the math library that he needed to use a fixed point math library that at the time there were none that we knew and um, I had some kind of knack for it, and eventually I took over the smart contract side of that project while he did the front end. That was the the very first um, development I did, and at the time, there were not so many resources to to learn uh, development, and I was not very good at reading from them either. So what I started doing was to find um, very simple uh, problems that I could code. Uh, so that I could also write an article about them, which was part of the um, marketing for the company we were doing. So it's like, okay, what can I do? I can code this very simple thing, and then I will write a 2,000-word article on how I did it and publish it, and that will maybe get us clients. And project by project by little project by little project, I basically coded an Zeppelin equivalent Um, of my own contracts. Open Zeppelin at the time, right? Now it's a lot more complicated. So that's how I learned. Nice.
1: And I think that's a pretty good strategy for a lot of people that are looking to enter the space. Uh, That's basically how I got involved in the industry as well. I made like a couple tutorial videos and people reached out and were like, hey, you should come do this for us full time, right? So I think that's a great strategy. Um, How do you think about that, right? Like, I think a lot of people believe that you know you know in order to write an article, I have to be an expert and know everything about the entire space, otherwise, I shouldn't be writing an article. I mean, how do you view this? Should people who are beginners be doing this like how do you how do you view it as a career development tool?
0: yeah, absolutely, absolutely um, i I learned what I learned because I had to to teach it. I had to write these articles, and that's how I learned all of it. It was kind of easy at the time as well because. Everything was very simple. There was no nothing complicated about it. It was all very basic. So you could learn this little bit and then teach about it. That's why I was also looking for the um, easiest examples and most simple, simple examples that I could find so that I could learn them properly and then teach them. And definitely whenever you are trying to learn something, if you can try to teach it to others at the same time, uh, that's the best way of learning because it will force you to put your thoughts in order and it will force you to look for all the little details that you could pass on. If you're just learning for yourself, you might not need to learn 100% of the topic. But if you're going to teach it to others, you should. I have another another example. After, after a while, that consultancy uh, that I was working on just yes, uh, went under. And I started working for... Um, uh, as uh, as educator, for a company that was going to do blockchain development courses, it never went live because of legal reasons. Not my fault, but still, I had to do a whole course in software development. And as you do, you never accept any job that you are a hundred percent qualified for. You always accept jobs that you that are a little bit out of your comfort zone. So it's like, okay, I'll I'll do this blockchain development course. I'll have to learn a little bit. I had never deployed a contract when I accepted the job because it was I didn't need to do that. Others would do it for me. But for the course, I actually needed to learn the whole development life cycle. So I did learn the whole process so that I could do that, that learning course for others to do the same. And that's how I learned a lot of stuff that otherwise would have been missed. So yeah, definitely. If you want to learn teaching, is definitely the best thing you can do.
1: Yep, I think that's a fantastic mindset. And I think anybody that's trying to get into the space should adopt a similar mindset, even if it's just documenting the thing you learned that week or something like that. Um, I think it's very, very helpful.
0: So There is also the aspect that as you teach others, especially now with uh, this social media age, as you teach others, you build your own profile a lot, right? You, I can see other developers and other auditors that they have seen the book quite clearly, they learn something, they tweet about it. They learn something, they tweet about it. And that very soon builds you a profile and makes you, gets your clients, get you in, into a a bigger job than otherwise, because otherwise you go to a job interview of whatever, and you have to convince the interviewer that these are the skills you have. On the other hand, if you have been making public your your learning process and you have been making public how you teach, the interviewer already knows, okay, this guy knows this much, and this guy knows how to communicate this way. So it's it's great. It it, it works well, both ways. You learn and you promote yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: no, I think that, that, like I said, I think it's the
1: right mindset to have, mm-hmm. and it's a great career growth tool for sure. Um, but it sounds like, so just tracing your journey a bit more, right? So you went from this consultancy to being an educator to... Mm-hmm. What what was the next step after that? Like, mm-hmm.
0: How did you end up at, at Yield and then beyond? Yeah, the next step was Yield. So I was still working as a as an educator when uh, Alan Nimer uh, contacted me via LinkedIn. As many other people contacted me at the time, and I was taking these little roles of telling them why their blockchain idea was was crap or why could I build it. It was mostly uh, a lot of crazy people, and I thought that Alan was. One of them, and I didn't know who Paradigm were. I had no idea. I was not on Twitter at the time. But I said, okay, seems to be to have money. I'll do this, this stuff for him. He seems to want someone that knows how to do fixed-point math that I had been doing for a previous project. Um, so, yeah, I started working uh, with him. I realized that he actually had uh, decent funds from Paradigm and had an idea that had legs, which was a rarity, Um, so I, at some point I said, look, instead of, instead of just paying me to do this little bit for you, why don't I just rewrite what you have been doing into a decent smart contract and yeah, and we take it from there. And that way I become the number one employee of, of Yield and the company was started. Nice. And what was that
1: like? So I think, um, one thing you suggested we, we discussed today is like walking through the process of actually shipping a v1 and then future like i guess a v2 of a protocol. So like what was that like? I mean you went from doing consultancy, right? You were building lots of different things. You went from being an educator where you're you're in more of like a teaching role to now it's like maybe i don't know if it was more high pressure or what it was like, but you know you were required to really ship like a large and you know yeah important protocol right so how did how did you approach that whole process
0: um at the beginning it was not at the beginning shipping the v1 was not too hard except for the fact that i had absolutely no idea what i was doing um but we were just building code and building code and building code and doing designs and how these things should look at the end and building our own tools to deploy and to debug, because we were building everything at the same time. But basically, we had no idea what we were doing, and no one did at the time, so that's fine. And and that's the, the bit that's, that, as a developer, you will find very easy. That just building that V1 got built, we go live, hey, we are live. And then is when we realized all the things that we had been missing about... Um, about releasing a a blockchain product. You release it, and then you find all the problems. Like, hold on, the code is immutable, and now we have to release a new feature. How are we going to do that? And then you start thinking of solutions. And now, hold on, there are users that are complaining about something. How do we deal with all these people that are complaining? Then you learn another thing. You need a Discord channel. You need support, uh, support tickets and things like that. You need to deal with governance. So what we discovered with V1 is that developing the, developing the protocol, it's very easy, but then the protocol meets the road, meets the chain, and you discover a lot of things that most people are not going to, to tell you. There is very little documentation on or articles on how to manage uh, a live protocol after after you release it. We released V1. Uh we, we made the mistake of making it immutable uh, because at the time we were looking at Uniswap V2, which is immutable, fully decentralized. And was, yeah, that's what we want to do. And also because I didn't know how to implement um, governance on chain at the time. So it's like, I don't trust this governance stuff. Let's not do it. Let's go decentralized. And that way I don't have to learn that bit. Um, so we did that. And then we realized that we couldn't release features basically because it's decentralized and permissionless. We tried for three months and it's like, no, this is this is not going to work whatsoever. The V1 served its purpose very well in showing us some big mistakes that we had in our in our idea on how a blockchain protocol works. And then three months after we started working on the V2. And the lesson here is that if this is your first protocol, take into account that you don't know shit, okay? You really don't know. So code something that you know is only going to last for a few months, most likely, and be ready to gather the feedback of all the things that you did wrong so that you can do them better for the V2. Like everyone, I mean, UNICEF V1 was live for a long time, doing nothing. Then it got some traction, and then Uniswap V2 came... Quite shortly after, once they got actual feedback of like, Okay, these are all the things that we did glaringly wrong with V1. So that was a big lesson for me. So your V1 really is a proof of concept that is going to be discarded quite soon.
1: It makes sense. I think that's, that's good advice to just assume that you're going to be wrong in some capacity uh, and prepare for that, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> are there any other patterns or mistakes that you see... Devs building their first protocol make like any any other general advice you'd have for them.
0: Well, there are there are a couple of mistakes that uh, that are pretty. bad. one of them is the one that we did of of uh, going for the centralised to soon. It's a lot easier if, if you are an early protocol to uh, to treat the centralization and permissionlessness as a feature that maybe is better to implement in the V2. So that you can actually gather more feedback from the V1 and do more tweaks on the V1 before you discard it. That's a mistake I did. Another mistake that I think many have done is to actually release a token too early. Uh, because you release a token and that uh that slows you down in the in the rate of change that you can do on on the protocol. Because you already you have a token you already give governance rights to the community, uh, that's going to uh, force you to implement changes at the speed that the community can agree on things. And that means that again, that will slow you down on your V1 and you won't be able to tweak all the things that you need to know what actually has product market fit and what gets traction. So that's another, another thing that I think is a feature that is better for the V2. The thing of decentralizing, uh, releasing a token for the centralized governance. Um, and also, releasing a token messes up all the, all the concept of why your product is getting traction. It might just be because actually you are paying your users. So, releasing a token early on, unless you are in need for the money, um, it's probably a mistake. Um, those are probably two of the mistakes I see, but many other mistakes in developing I don't see. It's it's expected that you will do mistakes, right? There are lots of things that you're only going to learn as you stumble into them on on how to implement a development process and how to introduce a, a security assessment into your development process, how to make sure that your governance actions, your Protocol changes are safe. These are things that you don't know right now with the V one, and that you need to learn as you as you evolve with your protocol, as you learn with your protocol.
1: Yeah, th- I think that makes sense. You're, you're going to have uh, the greatest incentive to learn when you're faced with a problem when it's right in front of you. I think as well. Uh, that's another thing to keep in mind. But there are things you can do to prepare. Right, keep in mind some yeah, of the exactly. things that, that that you're saying. What about on the security side, right? So as someone who's very security minded, I'm sure you have some thoughts about how to actually prepare for an audit, uh, whether it's with the version one or the, like, the, mm-hmm. I guess a more polished version two, how do you think about where audits fit into this process that you just mentioned? Is this proof of concept really just meant to be a proof of concept where like on the front end, there's a huge banner, which is like, this is it, this is in tests. We're basically, uh, testing in prod here, be careful. Do you do you always ship the V one with like a like a fully audited version? I mean, how do you think about where the whole audit process fits into shipping a new protocol?
0: Well the the audit is I see it as just one layer of security. Right? I think it was uh, Zero X Stormtrooper, the the guy that did very recently a pack of slides where he showed security as a layer of Swiss cheese slices, right? Each Each layer, each slice of Swiss cheese has pretty big holes, right? But if you put a lot of them on top on your sandwich, it it will actually should catch all the bugs or most. So security is a a layer thing, and you should think about it from the very beginning, right? So you are coding, you are coding your V1, make simple code, right? Don't go for the most complex stuff because you probably are not good enough to do it and you don't know... um, Exactly what the users are going to want. So start by coding simple code, right? That's going to make the bugs a lot easier to see. Do your unit tests. Yes, that's one layer of Swiss cheese. Then do fuzzing, do invariants, do all these layers of testing as you can, as much as you can. Audits. Yes, that's another layer of the of the Swiss cheese. Maybe you put the the. I like to put that one. After I've actually given the app to the front-end devs, right, I used to give pretty baggy smart contracts to the front-end devs at at, um, at Yield because they were actually very good at catching uh, not only bugs at the smart contract level, but also misconceptions at the design level. It's like the code might be perfect, and then the front-end dev goes to use it, and it's like, um, this... Doesn't make sense. This is not what we wanted to do. the the minimum, uh, the minimum amount that of that should be the position of a user. shouldn't we ba- shouldn't be based on the debt but of the collateral and things like that. That's design things that the auditor will say, yeah, that's fine. There, there is no bugs. But the user will say, that makes no sense. That's not what I want. Okay, so you do all your tests. You give it to the front-end devs and to the users so that they tell you that you have built the right thing. Then you actually do the audit. Maybe you do more than one. Uh, maybe the audit that you get is different according to the complexity because if this, is, if you're releasing the whole protocol, maybe you call someone like Trail of Beats or someone like that, that you know, or BDK that knows their stuff, and maybe you do that in a contest as well. But then if you are doing an upgrade and it's less code, maybe you just do the contest. Or maybe if you are doing a small module, you just get a solo audit or something like that. It's just another layer and that's Swiss cheese. But there are more layers afterwards. Okay. After that, you go live. But, for example, you can put the banner on top saying, uh, enter here and be aware of the consequences. Don't put too much money in because you might lose it. That's a layer of security that might actually stop your users from aping a whole million dollars that then you have to deal with if it, it gets lost. Um, you, put, you put limits to the, to the protocol that everyone does, like the maximum dev that we're going to have uh, in the first month is going to be one million. Then if we haven't been hacked by then, we will raise it to 10 million. And so on. each one of these actions in the lifetime of the protocol It's all based on security. And you just have to stack them, all of them. Don't depend just on the audit because it has holes. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I think the advice
1: to give the contracts to your front-end devs is really interesting because I haven't heard anybody say that before, but I think that's really good advice because they are going to catch things, right? Uh, Anyone that's built a front-end for anything, even if you're like a relatively inexperienced front-end developer, if you've had to build a front-end around smart contracts... You find, you know, that sometimes the way you need to implement things is not what the smart contract developer was thinking. So I think that's very good advice. Um, so I know you say that. So you're actually, I think you're right, right? The audit is just one layer, and it has holes in it. The thing about this layer is that it is like, it's a pretty expensive layer in terms of like you're writing a very large check, right? I think me personally, if I'm really thinking about it, like they're at like writing a really good test suite with really good devs. That's actually probably more expensive if you really add up the hours and how much money it's really going to cost. but you know, for people that are preparing for an audit, right? sometimes you have to book if you want a trailer bits type, if you want a really really good auditor, you have to book people four months out, six months out, a year out, you have to do a lot of prep work for it. So do you have any advice for a dev team that needs to prepare for an audit and actually engage in that process? like, how would you recommend doing that for someone who's never done it before?
0: Yeah, it's actually difficult. Um, doing, doing audits, getting your code audited is very difficult. First, because, yeah, it's it's a huge cost. Um, it actually is much cheaper to do unit tests, especially now that ChatGPT can write most of them or copilot. Uh, the The audit is very expensive. And there is this lead time, because if you book it four months in advance, you want your code, to be done and the front end devs to be done and then do the audit. That's very, very difficult to to time right. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm not very fun fa- very much of a fan of this kind of audits these days, that you have to book this match in advance. Um because of this, because of the timing issue. You know, it's it's very difficult. As soon as Code Arena started doing their con their contest format, I was one of the first guys that that went into it because You guys tell me that you can do my audit in three weeks' time. I'm done. Yeah, I want it. And with a more recent um, project, now that we are releasing variable rate for yield, um, it's like I don't want to go to Code Arena because of this kind of, because of the complexity of this project. I definitely don't want to wait four months to release this. So I just went out to Twitter to look for solo auditors because right now there is a lot of people that are starting. And I just selected four people that wanted to, to start a career. And I stacked my four auditors as a slices of Swiss cheese, knowing that they might not be very experienced, but the bugs that one misses, the other one will catch, I'm sure. And that's how I did it this time. So I think that my advice uh, for the devs that are releasing a protocol and that are facing the idea that they need an audit because the investors are going to ask for an audit and because the, the users expect an audit. Being a little bit creative maybe works out better because it's just one layer of switches; It's one la- layer of security. Maybe you can use a different audit that has a faster turnaround time, a contest or solo auditors or something like that, so that you can actually do the audit at the precise time. That is best, once you have done the code, you have done the tests, you have done the front-end testing, now it's time to do the audit and you get it done. And you are right in time to market. And then to make up for the fact that maybe your audit is not the quality that Trail of Bits would do, fine. You put other layers on top. You do a, a phased go live so that if the, if the auditors have missed a bug, this is the maximum that you are losing. You don't release a decentralized permissionless protocol. You make sure that you can make changes so that as another layer of security, if there is a bug, you can fix it. You make sure that you put some feature that can allow you to pause the contract. I didn't have it in V1. So that if there is a bug, you can just pause everything very easily and give you time to think. You just stack them. The big, massive audit that needs six months lead time and costs you more than $100,000, maybe you don't need it. Maybe that's something that you do for Uniswap V4 and for Compound V3 and those big protocols. Those are the ones that should do it. Maybe you don't need it for your safe Shiba Inu decentralized AMM protocol. (laughs) Yeah, the the safe Shiba Inu for
1: whatever that is. Yeah, maybe you can be a little more creative so yeah. I think you, you've walked us through a lot of your your mm-hmm. thoughts on security, right? I like this Swiss cheese model, stacking layers of Swiss mm-hmm. cheese. I like the way you put audits in context. It's just another layer. And that you, know, like you can get creative, especially mm-hmm. if you're just starting and building your first version. Um, do you have any other thoughts or high-level advice that come from your experience building protocols about security? Um, anything else that devs should know who are doing this for the first time?
0: Um, definitely something that we have learned in the last year is that despite all these layers of Swiss cheese, shit happens. Okay? You are going to, one of the bugs are, is going to make it through or you will get hacked or your integrator will get hacked as it happened recently to us in, in Euler. Make sure that you can deal with thi- these things in an orderly manner. Okay, being able to post the protocol is one, have a, have a process to deal with incidents and practice it. Uh, it's absolutely necessary. Uh, it might even be fun. The, the first time we did that before we released um, V2, we didn't have it for V1. But for V2, we have a, an incident response plan. We had, never, we had never used it. We were not even live. I used to do a good amount of role playing when I was a teenager. So I was the role master in a war room. And I was just telling the the developers, okay, so you, uh, Marco, you are in Discord just wandering around. And a user is saying that this thing is looking bad. What do you do? And we just role played the whole thing. And I was just throwing them things. And it was lots of fun, but it was very useful. If I would do it again, if I could, um, I would probably actually deploy the protocol uh, on a Tenderly fork that you can share. And I would probably hack my own protocol in that Tenderly fork using something, maybe some, uh, maybe I would introduce some bug myself or something. I would hack my own protocol on, on Tenderly. And I would give that fork to the developers and say, a user is saying that he's seeing this. And you go to the Tenderly fork, and this is a Tenderly fork. What next? And that, that was fun. I actually liked mistreating my developers that way. <laughs> so yeah, basically the, the lesson is make sure, make sure that you know what to do when shit gets real because shit is going to get real. Sooner or later, it's going to get real.
1: Yeah, that's actually really interesting. Role playing the, the war room scenario. I don't think that's something that many protocols or teams do. But like you said, it, it, there's really mm-hmm. good odds that it's going to happen. And if you've never really thought through what you're going to do, I mean, you're going to be stressed anyway, given the situation. But it, it's going to oh, make yes. it far worse, right? Uh, people that work very, very high stress yeah. jobs, whether they're like first responders or people in the military, they they prepare for these worst case scenarios. Um, and it's yeah, it's something you should probably mm. think about as well if you're building in DeFi.
0: Yeah, In our. In our case, we have been through uh, at least half a dozen war rooms. Um, the first five, not the first five, of which a couple were significant. And um, the thing is, as as you do more of them, it becomes more of second nature. It's like, okay, something is going on. It might be nothing, but we're starting a war room. There is no pressure. We're just starting a war room, and these are the steps. And you pull the checklist and you start doing the things. And when shit actually gets real and this is like, hold on, I think this time we might actually be losing real money and your, your heartbeat is going to go up, okay? And your head is going to get clouded and your fingers are going to be get a little bit trembly because it's like, have we actually lost a million dollars? Okay, you have the checklist to go down. It's like, okay, my... My head is not very clear, but this is what I have to do. I do this, I do this, and you get to regain focus and you get to actually secure the protocol up to a point where you can breathe again and think, okay, how screwed are we? Is this an extension event? Okay, no? Great. Let's try to fix it. But you need it. And everyone's hoping for that,
1: that great feeling that it's not an extinction event, I suppose. Um, but I think that's, that's really good advice. The, the, the checklist is, is good advice as well. Um, so shifting back into just general DeFi stuff a little bit, you, when we were you know, chatting on Twitter about this, you mentioned a few things that you've worked on that I think, or maybe are continuing to work on at Yield that you're excited about. Um, what are some of the design patterns or primitives that you've worked on in DeFi that you're most proud of, uh, would love, uh, yeah, would love for you to speak to that.
0: Well, there are the the two ERCs that I uh, led or helped with, the um, the Flash Loans uh, ERC that I I led. That was very cool, and that's something I'm very proud of. Um, in part because when I saw that. There was a space for a for a flash loan standard where you could actually get flash loans from any provider uh, without having to develop a specific adapter for each provider. I immediately said, hold on. If you make this a standard, that means that eventually flash loans will be will be free. And I will ruin this flash loan business from AAVI, and I will ruin this flash loan flash loan business from Uniswavi 2, and I will ruin All of them, because eventually the fees will go to zero because this will be a race to the bottom if it's easy. So that's something I'm very proud of because it actually came up as true. Um, When I was doing the standard, I tried to convince uh, a few protocols to adopt it, Aave and Uniswap, and none of them wanted. They were all very against the idea. Quite obviously, I was planning to, um, to disrupt their business and get them... Uh, the Flash Loan fees to Zero. And I was saying, it's going to happen. You can fight against it, but it's going to happen. It's coming for you. And it eventually happened. There came MakerDAO first with uh, DAI Flash Loans at 0%, and then came Euler, which I hope it comes back, with Flash Loans of anything at 0% using the standard. And it's like, yeah, I've been vindicated. I did it. So that's one I'm very proud of. And the other one, ERC4626 for, for tokenized vaults. That was built on the lessons I had learned from from the flash loans at ERC. Um, Transmissions 11. He changed his uh, his handle on Twitter uh, one day to T4626S, and I looked at that and it's like 4626. That's about the number that you would get for uh, for an EIP these days. And I went to, to the Ethereum GitHub and I opened EIP 4626 and he was there with Joey Santoro and Jet Yadeja with this ERC that they were drafting. And I went to him and he's like, dude, don't, don't do it. Writing an ERC is such a world of pain. You guys are not ready. Just don't do it, save yourself. And well, eventually they convinced me to join instead. So. <laughs> And it happened, and it was that one I just joined because I didn't want them to suffer, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to save these kids from, from pain. And I was completely not expecting that it would be, have any relevance whatsoever. And then it, hold on, we have done this and everyone is jumping on it and they are all super excited. Did I accidentally do something that actually has traction? Yay! So those two I'm very happy about.
1: Uh, one thing that I get with a lot of these conversations that I have are there are some people that they seem to really want to push what they're working on. They they want to turn something into a standard. But I've actually seen that it's it's pretty rare that people are successful in that. And every time I have somebody on who has had success in building out a standard, I try to like soak up as much knowledge and because everyone listening... I think could really benefit from this as well. What I mean, you you said you said you wanted to jump in to help these kids, <laughs> so they didn't have to go through a world of pain with this process. How, I mean, how do you how yeah. do you approach this? Right? What's what's so painful about it? What advice do you have for somebody else that wants to build the next big ERC, whatever whatever the number is going to be?
0: Well, the the problem with building a standard is that, um. If you build a standard that doesn't have for something that doesn't have a use yet, like imagine that I decide to do a standard now for a complete new primitive or a new proxy pattern or something that no one is using yet, but it's in my mind, and I do it as a standard. Um, that will be like a in a V1 of a protocol. You will release that standard and all the things that you didn't think about, they will become apparent. And... Most likely th- than not, it will be a failed standard, or it will be a faulty standard. And that will be very painful, because if um, if smart contracts are immutable, standards are even more immutable, okay? So if you do an ERC about something that no one has ever done before, it's very hard that you will get it right, okay? But if you do a standard about something that people have already started doing, like flash loans or tokenized vaults or things like that, you already know the things that work and the things that don't and you're more likely to do a a successful standard. But then the problem is that you release it and there's a lot of immutable contracts that can't adopt your standard and there is a lot of big protocols that don't want to adopt your standard for whatever reason. And that's again going to hurt the standard. For example, you have twenty six twelve for for uh, for uh, signing permissions of chain, right? Um, and there there is some previous examples. Dai doesn't conform to it, so now everyone has to do the the adapter to use twenty six twelve permits and Dai permits as well. So they there is an imperfect uh, adoption of your standard. Or I did the flash loans uh, thing, and yeah, MakerDAO and Euler are using it. But AVI Compound, um, Uniswap are not using it. So again, you do a standard, but it's rare that everyone is going to say, yeah, we are going to change all our smart contracts to your standard. That's not going to happen. So, in a sense, I don't know how to make an ERC standard that is successful because it's very difficult is at heart it's a little bit of an impossible task You either do a zero shot effort and you nail it which is hard or you do a shot with something that you already know about but then adoption is really hard because there is prior work so my advice if you want to do an ERC standard is a don't do it for pride don't do it because it will look cool on your cv it's it's most likely that it will be irrelevant and it will be a lot of wasted effort on your part and if you're if you are unlucky if you are unlucky you might even hurt the ecosystem because you will release a faulty standard that is adopted only for, by a few and it just hurts a possible standard that could come later that would be successful so don't do it for pride do it if you really believe in it, and be careful and take time, because it's really hard to get it right. And the mistakes that you make with the ERC will haunt you forever, much more than in the smart contracts. I can, I could point you to a few mistakes in the Flash Loans ERC and in the forty six twenty six ERC that will haunt me forever. So take it easy, okay? It's it's not for the faint of heart. Good words of advice and words
1: of warning for those who uh, think it's going to be easy, I suppose. Don't do it. <laughs> so, okay, one thing you mentioned there is that, you know, if smart contracts are immutable, ERCs are even more mutable, right? Because people are going to... OpenZeppelin's going to build contracts for it, right? They're going to install OpenZeppelin contracts. They're going to use them. Uh, and yeah, I think it's a very good point. But I saw, you know, when I was looking through your Twitter before the conversation, I saw... You say something, and correct me if I'm misunderstanding this or, or remembering this incorrectly, but I think that y- you highlighted in, in one tweet, maybe it was a month ago or a couple weeks ago, that there's a tension between getting a bunch of users and building a product or a protocol that people really want to use and pure immutability and decentralization. Um, how do you see... Immutability and decentralization uh, itself—is this something that we need to be a little bit more careful about? It sounds like maybe that would be your answer because of all the, the security discussion we had. But I'm curious just to hear how you how you think about this.
0: Well, this is a complicated question that I I hope won't end me in jail in these times. So, um, before the tornado cash thing happened. Um, I, well, my, my first, in the very far past when we released the V1 is just the, the centralization is cool. Uniswap has done it. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, just because it's cool. Uh, then I realized that, okay, it's cool, but it will actually stop you from, um, from getting product market fit because you won't be able to iterate. Okay. Uniswap in that sense, is the, the poster child that did the impossible thing, right? Uniswap released a V1 with some success, released a V2, released a V3. So it only has had uh, three iterations, right? It only has had three opportunities to release new features, to pivot in the search of product market fit. And it has managed to do it. But Uniswap was very special in that, A, it was very early, and B, it had a very simple use case. You might look at Uniswap and think, ah, it's immensely complicated, especially V3. But from a design point of view, from a use case point of view, it's actually very simple. Uniswap allows you to swap A for B at a marked determined price. That's what it does. And it uses the liquidity from users to, to power that system. That's all it does. You go to yield or you go to compound or you go to FRAX or whatever, and you have all these different things that you have to do. You have to do a collateralized engine, and then you do a uniswap clone on the side for this, and then you have a liquidations engine, and then you have uh, this other thing to manage the interest rates. It's immensely more complicated. If you do that, the chances are that you're going to have to tweak one, the other, the other, the other, until they work. You are not Uniswap if you are building something that complicated. So, then that was still before Tornado Cash. Tornado Cash, uh, I was like, no, dude, decentralization just just forget about it first. Get get some product market fit, and then you think about that as just another feature. But then Tornado Cash happened, and then it's like, hold on, this feature that. I thought it was mostly a fad that was very nice for your values, but mostly useless. It has this very good use case where you actually don't get shut down because you can just walk away and say, hey, I, I, I have nothing to do with this. Not my fault. You cannot you cannot stop the protocol. I have nothing to do if that holds up in court. Um, so then the idea of decentralization as a way of making sure that your protocol survives uh, legal action, it's a lot more appealing. Okay, so the, the trade-off like, okay, do I want to slow down my pivot for product market fit to avoid uh, a legal attack? The trade-off changes, but that's a trade-off that you need to consider. It's like, what am I most scared of? Of not getting traction or, uh, or uh, getting outcompeted competed by others? Or am I more scared of uh some government or some legal company or something forcing me to stop the protocol because I have the keys. That's a trade off you have to do. There is no there's no single answer. In all in all design it's all trade offs. You have to choose whether you want A more or you want B more. And decentralization and permissionless is a feature that has a certain use case. Does it apply to you? It applied to Tornado Cash, and it applied to the, to the protocols that are coming after Tornado Cash. And, but does it apply, for example, to yield that is still trying to find that product market fit that will uh, allow us to get uh, pure traction? No, it's too early for us. It's too early. So think carefully. I mean, it might, it might be very attractive because of your values, to be decentralized. But if you are a failed protocol, what is it what war for? Choose. Interesting. That's
1: that's I think a really good way to think about it. And I think even if you even if you do care about the decentralization values, if like you said, if you if you end up a failed protocol and you don't even have a chance to progressively decentralize, then you know, I would actually even argue that taking the more practical approach in the short to medium term, might even be best for living out your values in the long term. But it depends on where
0: you are and what your situation is.
1: Mm -hmm. So, for sure.
0: Yeah. Maybe if there is a full-on attack on crypto and most crypto is made uh, illegal and platforms like Avi and Compound are made illegal, then I would expect that there would be some crypto annons that would say, okay, so this this is the scenario where we are at we are going to launch a decentralized compound so that this primitive exists in blockchain and cannot be stopped. It's a different scenario. The trade-off is different. Now they are not so worried about being outcompeted, and they are very worried about, uh, they're not worried about finding product market fit because they know it exists. And they are very worried about getting into legal trouble. So these crypto annons would definitely launch a completely decentralized compound protocol because of the scenario. Right now, doesn't make sense because if you launch a completely decentralized compound protocol that cannot change, you are going to be outcompeted competed by and compound that can't change.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. So we're coming up on time here, but one final question for you, uh, I guess maybe two final questions, but w- one final question just for for the early career dev or mid career dev, someone who's just trying to get better, trying to level up. You know, they see someone like yourself and uh, they look up to you. They want to just get as good as you are at building contracts and building protocols, right? Do you have any final advice for them on how to approach this this journey? Uh,
0: yeah, well the the way I've I've done it for myself is to look into the far future, into what do I want to be or where I want to be. And go in that direction. You don't need to have a path step by step. I will do this by this day, this by this day, this way, this day. That's unrealistic. But you can have the final goal in your mind. The final goal in your mind might be, I want to be a smart contracts developer and I want to be able to deploy things and I want to have a successful protocol. Or I want to be a CTO or I want to do this, or I want... Have that final goal, okay? Because when you have that final goal, the earlier steps, you will know the direction, okay? Does this get me closer to that? Yeah. Does it get me closer to that? No. So you decide. And on top of that, make sure that you have fun and that you like what you do, because otherwise it's not going to work. I've I've always chosen what to do in life in the sense that, is this going to be fun? So when I was in Lisbon and I was looking for a, a new job, I was like, is it fun to be a middle manager in a, in a billion-dollar unicorn? That was so great. Or is it fun to learn about this shit and, and join these two crazies that don't even have an office, that they don't even pay for their co-work, and learn about this stuff that all these weird people are doing about? Which one is more fun? This one is more fun. So yeah, make it fun. It's worked out for me. I love it. Follow what is fun.
1: I like that. Um, okay. Well, listen, Alberto, it's been a, a ton of fun chatting with you today. Uh, last question is just like, do you, do you have anywhere you'd like to point our listeners? What links should they check out? Uh, where can they find more about Yield, about your career? Where would you like to point uh, the listeners of Devs do something?
0: Well, nowadays, everything is on Twitter, right? I hope that you are listening to this. You are not on LinkedIn. That was a mistake. I did early in my career. Get off there, get into Twitter. All the crazies are there. Don't be scared to deal with the crazies. Is what gives it color. It's great ent- entertainment, and from there you can pull the stuff. I don't know. I, I I am not very good at at learning from others. All the stuff I've learned is mostly from myself making mistakes and and doing it again. But yeah, you can you can find everything is there. It's amazing that for while Twitter is alive and it doesn't die for whatever reason. You can just talk with anyone and you can listen to anyone. Everything is there.
1: All right. So follow Alberto on Twitter. Go on Twitter. Post what you're doing on Twitter. Share it with the world. And what's 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 the handle? What's the Twitter handle for people so they know it?
0: Alcueca. Alcueca. The first two letters of my name, three letters of the first surname, two letters of the second surname. All right. Search for Alberto Blockchain and my face will appear there splattered everywhere.
1: Good. Okay.
0: They could do that too. Alberto
1: Blockchain. Well, listen, Alberto, thank you again. It's been a great conversation. I learned a lot personally. And uh, yeah, it's been fun.
0: Thank you. It was, it was great talking to you. It was great fun, which is good. Um, I'm always happy to try to get people up the, up the skill ladder. So I'm very happy to have talked with all of you. I hope that you guys have learned something. Be aware that sometimes I talk bullshit. So take care and, and research things yourselves. And please, learn a lot
1: and have fun. Thanks, Alberto.